Welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. This is Michael Zarling, the past, one of the two pastors at Water of Life. And this is Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer, one of the, well, the other pastor at Water of Life. <laughs> one of the other pastors. Uh, today we're going to be beginning a new series uh, for the next four weeks as we're looking at parables of Jesus. And we were talking last time about stories and so forth. And so we're going to begin, be looking at four stories or parables that Jesus is talking about. But talking about stories, so last time we had recorded, we were talking about preaching styles and adding stories. And then, you know, something happened last week, didn't it, Nathan, as far as preaching? Yes. So I had had a relatively minor procedure at the beginning of month, of the beginning of the month, and uh, was doing fine on my recovery, was feeling really well. And last week, Thursday, had a complication from that surgery. Uh, ended up getting admitted into the hospital Thursday night, almost needed to have a transfusion, and then had emergency surgery Friday morning. And so Friday morning, I called my associate and said, um, I don't think I'm going to be up for preaching on Sunday. And he said, that is absolutely unacceptable, Nathan. You need to be in the pulpit. I don't care what happened to you. Yeah. No, I, so then after being at Board for Home Missions meetings at Senate office for two full days, then staying at Senate office for an extra three hours with four other district mission board chairmen and uh, the gentleman who is in charge of congregational counseling, then coming back, uh, eating dinner, writing a sermon, a hymn devotion, recording it. But I bring it up just because, well, just to kind of rip on you a little bit. And secondly is we were talking about preaching styles and so forth, and I said how I, if I was preaching on the Joseph text, I'd probably tell the whole story, and which is good because then I listened to my advice and a good third of the sermon was just retelling the entire story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And I'm glad you bring it up because it uh, it gives me an opportunity to just express my appreciation for having a wonderful associate who is there to help out when these small, unforeseen circumstances occur. Yeah, uh, an associate that also reminded you that I'm I'm acting like your wife sometimes and making sure you get to your doctor's appointments, you're eating healthy and so forth. But that's okay. It's supposed to be that way. Yeah, I'm not the one that usually has the problem with eating healthy. You were rather critical of my delicious butternut squash soup that I had for lunch today. Yeah, I was critical of it because I said there was only one word of those three descriptive words that was good, and that was soup. You know, butternut squash, just get rid of those and just have soup. Uh, but we're looking at today the theme of a story of perplexing generosity, and it's going to be looking at grace. One of the things that I like doing in the sermons as well is bringing in the different scripture readings. And when I remember to do so, looking at some of the hymns or the prayer of the day and so forth. So in looking in preparation for today, the prayer of the day for this Sunday begins, Lord God, you call us to work in your kingdom and promise to reward us according to your grace. I think sometimes that when we're in church, we just listen to that prayer that the pastor prays. We sing or say amen, and then 
and we move on and we don't think of it again. But that prayer of the day is really the beginning of the word section. Even though it's before the word section in the hymnal, it's really setting everything up. So pay attention to that prayer of the day like this Sunday and notice it's talking about rewards and grace and even the reward of grace because that's what we're going to be looking at in the gospel lesson. If you want to read that, Nathan. Yeah, the gospel lesson for this week is from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Indeed, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing to pay the workers a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. He also went out about the third hour and saw others standing unemployed in the marketplace. To these he said, You also go into the vineyard, and I will give you whatever is right. So they went. Again he went out at the sixth, the ninth, and did the same thing. When he went out about the eleventh hour, he found others standing unemployed. He said to them, Why have you stood here all day unemployed? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He told them, You also go into the vineyard. When it was evening, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them for their wages, starting with the last group and ending with the first. When those who were hired around the eleventh hour came, they each received a denarius. When those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but they each received a denarius too. After they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were last worked one hour, and you made them equal to us who have endured the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not make an agreement with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. I want to give to the last one hired the same as I also gave you. Can't I do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? In the same way, the last will be first and the first will be last. So, Nathan, you're going to be preaching on this text, even though I was up to be preaching because we switched then. Uh, And, you know, I'll ask you a little bit, you know, how you're taking this text. But again, telling stories, if I was preaching on this text, I'd probably be begin with a story about uh, putting what's going on in Jesus' story into uh, a setting of today. And there I might bring up, when I was a, between my freshman and sophomore years of college, I went out and stayed the entire summer in Yakima, Washington with my friend Joe. And Joe had promised me a job working in the orchards there in Yakima. So it's uh, kind of a fertile area, lots of orchards and so forth, even though the area around Yakima is a lot of deserts. And he promised me to work out with the white guys out in the orchard, you know, using the machinery and so forth. But when they learned that I didn't know how to do any of that stuff, I ended up not working with any white guys. Instead, it was all white women and all the Hispanic men and women uh, in the factory of sorting the fruit and boxing it up and so forth. I was the only white guy in that building. And it was fine because uh, I got to eat a lot of fresh fruit, you know, peaches and, and cherries and so forth as they're coming down the conveyor belt. And then uh, getting to know the Hispanic people and their culture and then them bringing in for me authentic Mexican food for lunch. That was fantastic. Rancheros. I don't think Ranchos is really very authentically uh, Hispanic, even though I said two weeks ago in our podcast, that's my favorite food. And so my wife lovingly made that for dinner last night. But 
I would set it up in that kind of scenario because when you have an orchard like in Yakima and it's time to pick the cherries or the peaches or the apples. You've got to get a big crew. And you've got people that are day laborers, and they're maybe all gathered in one spa- one spot. Not that they are lazy, but they're looking for work. And they're going to work hard all day long. And then the orchard owner uh, maybe sends some workers over there with a pickup truck and then picks them all up. Maybe you need 15, 20 guys, several trucks, get in the back of the truck, go over to the orchard and work all day long. So I'm not sure how you're setting up the, the sermon for this week. So the one the one kind of analogy I, I was going to work in is I said, consider yourself, you know, you're getting paid by the hour. And at the end of the day, you get paid for your eight-hour shift. And you look over and you realize the guy that only worked a four-hour shift gets the exact same amount of money. And then I asked, well, what would you do in that situation? One, you'd probably be saying some unkind things about the guy paying you. And then two, you'd probably be going the next day to find a different job uh, because that's that's not fair. And I'm doing more in my sermon talking about the idea, the idea of fairness and how we're almost hardwired um, to look for fairness, to say that's not fair. Um, my we we put a picture up every week in our PowerPoint that is something to do with our sermon. And in this one, I have a I have a stat picture of Lady Justice, mm. and just talk about well, what are our expectations of justice? That the scales are even, that justice is blind, that we're getting rewarded according to what we do. If we do good, we get good rewards. If we do bad, we get bad rewards. That's what we expect. And yet when we read this parable, we see that's not how God deals with us in grace. And I really kind of hit on the idea that we don't want God to deal with us in justice. We don't want God to deal with us fairly. We want God to deal with us in grace. So with that, Nathan, what do you think this parable is about more? Is it more about us and the way we treat grace or is it more about God and the way he treats grace? Is it a parable about the workers, or is it a parable about the vineyard owner? I think it's a parable about the workers and how we sometimes view grace and how even as, as Christians, lifelong Christians, we can't help but draw comparisons between ourselves and others. Uh, it was listening to the preacher's podcast on this. And, you know, we talk, talking from a purely human um, viewpoint, I liked, I don't remember which one of the, the, the people on there had said this, but it was, well, Adam faithfully served the Lord for 940 years. Abraham faithfully served the Lord for 175 years. Paul faithfully served the Lord after his conversion for, let's say, 30 years. The thief on the cross faithfully served the Lord for a matter of hours, and yet they all received the same reward. From a human viewpoint, we would say, well, that's not, that's not fair. Adam had so much more time invested. Adam should get paid more. Or the Apostle Paul, okay, well, he, he did so much for the church. He should get paid more. And I do think there is an aspect of, you know, Scripture does talk about that in in heaven, 
we will, there are different degrees of, of glory. But I don't think that's what this parable is talking about. This, I, this parable is talking about how that as God's people, we all receive the same reward and just how ungrateful it is for us to, to judge God on how he decides to pay us. Yeah, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But just to set up this gospel, too, is that uh, the way chapter 20 begins is, indeed, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus starts talking about. But all right, he doesn't just begin with that parable out of the blue. I think that's what we often think when we're beginning a chapter or seeing it on Sunday in the bulletin, is Jesus is responding to something. And what he's responding to is the events of chapter 19. The rich young ruler comes, and then Peter answers Jesus, look, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? You can imagine him saying, hey, I'm one of these workers. I've, my brother and my friends and I, we've worked long hours. And then he said, but then Jesus says to him, Amen, I tell you, in the renewal, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You're going to get your reward. Everyone who's, who has left homes or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Indeed. And then he begins the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So he's responding to Peter who's saying, hey, Lord, we've worked all day in the vineyard uh, as your disciples, as your servants. And then Jesus says, yeah, you're going to get your reward. But what about those who haven't worked as long as you have? They're going to get the same reward. How are you and your brothers here in front of me, how are you guys going to react to that? Well, and it makes this parable interesting, too, because it seems that Jesus is giving this parable to the disciples and not to a larger group like many of the other parables are. And I also think that in the context of the rich young ruler, I do think Peter is making a comparison between the disciples and that rich young ruler who went away sad because he and that ruler had come and asked Jesus, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, well, keep the commandments. And he said, well, I've done all that. And Jesus, knowing heart, said, well, give up your riches and follow me. And the man went away sad. And what Jesus was getting at is God's not interested in our outward actions. God's interested in the attitude of our heart. God wants us to put him first. And if we put anything before him, well, then that's that's the root of our sin. And then I think you have a little bit of Peter here going, well, Lord, we, we did what you said. We gave up everything and followed you. And Jesus, again, is instructing the disciples, saying, no, you're, you're also, you're missing the point here. The point isn't about what you do. The point is about God's grace. And Jesus says in the parable, he has the owner say, when it was evening, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages. And then this is an interesting point. Because the parable doesn't work unless it has this statement, starting with the last group and ending with the first. That if he would have started with the first, and then those guys got their money and walked away, and then the, 
The last workers who worked only an hour, then they get paid the same denarius. And a denarius was a day's wage. So if you got paid your for your eight or 10 hours and you got $100, you got your $100, everyone gets the same amount. But it doesn't work that way. So that's why Jesus, you know, being the son of God, he knows what he's doing and he teaches it this way in that the last receives it first. Well, it's interesting how Jesus builds that tension in the story. And if you were looking at this from a purely, you know, secular worldview, this is a really, this is not a good way to run a business. Um, One, the guy is just throwing money away for not a lot of work. And then two, you're setting up the conflict between these two groups of people. Um, I, I came across this, I don't remember if it was reading or if in another podcast I was listening, but it, it says, and I, I didn't find this myself, but the, the person who said this said that the giving the denarius for the day's wages actually would have been a very generous day's wages because that was the standard pay for a Roman soldier at the time. And so it was not necessarily standard pay for like an agricultural worker at the time. So you're starting off that it seems like this landowner is being very generous in the initial offer he makes to the people to work for the entire day. He's paying them more almost than what the going rate was. And so that kind of, I think, adds to the the ingratitude of the people who had worked for the entire day. And what he, the, the main theme here is to Peter and the other disciples, and then for us, do you expect to receive wages from God for living right, or do you look at yourself as a recipient of God's grace? So that's really the key. Are we going to be those first laborers and say, I have worked long and hard from my baptism as an infant? I uh, I preached on Tuesday for a funeral for someone who, one of our members that he had been baptized two weeks after his birth, died in his 80s. And, uh, you know, for Armin, uh, the saint who is now in heaven around God's throne, does Armin complain, well, Lord, I have been a faithful disciple of yours since my baptism as a child and served you faithfully for 80 years, for eight decades, but now this other person comes in his 80th year, and now he's saved. Uh, And I think sometimes we can be like that. Armin certainly was not like that. But we can be like that being those first-day laborers and then complaining that God has mercy on other people and we have taken God's mercy for granted uh, instead of being the the last people. Uh, And talking about taking God's grace for granted, I I tell that to my 7th and 8th graders in catechism class when they start complaining about their grades or things like that, uh, that I, I tell them, I am very gracious with your grades. I am a very easy grader. I want you to know these things. Even if... Uh, I think sometimes the students are harder on their classmates because what they have to do for their memory work is, say it's uh, the fourth commandment, which is their upcoming memory work. They're, they have to say their memory work to either the teacher or myself or to a student that I choose. A lot of times that student is writing down how many helps they gave. And if it's like more than two, they got to send them back. 
I'm a lot more gracious. I just, if they say it and they're pretty close, uh, then I give them, hey, you had zero wrong. But I tell them, and with their grades too, with their homework, is I'm not going to take percentages off because that's kind of the rule now. If you have it so many days late, it's so many percentages off. I said, I want you to do your homework with your parents, study together. But eventually I tell them, and it's about getting time to lay into them because half of them are 100%, the other half are failing because it's missing. But I'll lay into them saying, I have been gracious with you. I have not tanked your grades, but now you have abused my grace. And now comes the hammer of the law. And that's what Jesus is getting at here with this parable. And I hadn't really noticed this before, but what he's talking about here, uh, that, you know, you said this before, Nathan, they wanted justice. And in verse 13, the vineyard of the owner tells them that justice is all they're going to get from him. I am not being unfair to you. And then he says, get away, you know, to go away from me. And I hadn't thought of this until connecting it with, you know, Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 25, saying to the, the goats on his left, depart from me. And that's really what he's saying here is, depart from me. And where, where do you depart from me? In, into hell. Because you have uh, decided not to accept my grace. Instead, you've decided to reject my grace. I think this is one of those parables that deals with a much more subtle sin than, you know, some of the other some of the other things we preach on. And I think this as much as we want to say to ourselves, "No, I don't have this attitude." This is an attitude we all fall into very easily because this is getting at that opinio legis that we all have that I want to be judged by what I do and more than that, I want to be able to judge myself by what somebody else is doing. And I think it's very, very easy for us as Christians to say, okay, yeah, I've got a little bit of sin, but you know what? There's always members in our church that the elders have to talk to because they're not coming to church. And even though I sin in my life, at least I'm getting to church every Sunday. At least I'm not as bad as those people. And so one of my examples, I tie in another story I'm going to tie into my sermon, is the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, that, that we, we love to make those comparisons. And then what this story is, this parable is getting at is, don't, don't make a comparison. God is not judging you based on how you do against everyone else. God is judging you on the standard of his law. Be holy. Can you answer that? You have been holy holy? No, of course not. You can't meet that standard, and so God in his fairness would be to send you to hell. The wages of sin is death. That's fairness. That's justice. That's making everything equal, because you're not in faith. We're not in com- competition with one another. We're, we're being weighed, measured against that standard of the law. And you and I had the privilege yesterday to meet a brand new family. This uh, young lady had called me out of the blue, at least I felt it was out of the blue, on Wednesday morning. She said, my, oh, my uh, grandmother had had her, her funeral here about 15 years ago, and I grew up in the church going to Sunday school and so forth. And uh, she and her boyfriend just had a baby, a month ago, and wanted to meet with me about baptism. 
And she even asked on the question or on the phone call if it's going to cost or anything. So no, this is something we give to you for free because God gives it to you free for free. And we had set up that meeting uh, Wednesday afternoon, and I had received a phone call as I was walking into church, hung up, came downstairs into the office, and I told Nathan, that's how you do evangelism work. You just answer the phone. Uh, but that's all God's grace. And then we ended up meeting with them yesterday. And usually going through the Bible study on baptism is about you know, 30 to 40 minutes. They were here at least an hour and a half. They were excited to talk to the two of us. And then they just, it seems like they're hungering for the gospel. And, and I bring up this example because of the grace that God has given to them. But Lord willing, that grace that God is going to give to their son Noah in a few weeks when we set up the baptism. There's nothing that Noah has done to receive this grace, and yet he will, through the gift of baptism, receive a new name placed on him, receive the white robe of righteousness, receive the gift of faith, and then the sanctification that comes through that and so forth. And that's a a good concrete example of the whole series on Sunday on well, and this parable kind of hits at the same the same ideas of the prodigal son, especially the, the end with the second the second son, where the father is like, "Why are you sad? Like your brother was dead, and now he's alive again. You should be rejoicing." And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get the disciples to realize here. It's like don't don't compare yourselves. To other people. You're, you're never going to find satisfaction. You're never going to have happiness there. Instead, if you're like the tax collector in that other parable where you beat your breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, where you focus on God's grace. You focus on what God has done for you and what an amazing and generous gift God has given to you in salvation, that free gift that is yours because of what Christ has done, not because of anything that you have done. And like I said before, that uh, many times because we read in chapters or sections of chapters, we don't see the whole story. I guess I hadn't noticed this either, that Jesus uh, says at the end of chapter uh, 19 of Matthew, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And then he goes into the parable of the workers in the vineyard, and he ends this parable by saying the same way, the same thing. In the same way, the last to be first and the first last. And Nathan, I know you haven't had to deal with this, but I have. I appreciate this verse because Zarling is usually last. So I always try and make sure in my classes and so forth, the last will be first. Those that have Z names, you get to go first. All of those who are A's, you guys get to go last. Just to be have a little... Fairness, even though life is not fair. Yeah, Klusmeyer's kind of right in the middle there, so it doesn't matter which end of the alphabet you start from. It, you know, <laughs> yeah. still in the middle, no matter what. But what's what's the idea that Jesus has? It's not about getting to go in the the food line or recess line or whatever first. It's that uh, those who we might consider to be last because they were converted later on in life or maybe they had what we would say is an outward sin that has kept them because people inside the church have been uh, 
seeing that sin and kind of standoffish, or the people know that this is an outward sin and they separate themselves from the church. I've seen both of those things happen. What Jesus is saying here is, now all of you are welcome. It doesn't matter your sin. I have paid for that sin already. Come in. Yeah, and I think that sometimes gets to kind of one of the more ugly sides of having faith, which is sometimes that self that self-righteous attitude that is there which is which is illustrated in the Old Testament lesson for this week with with Jonah. Um and I kind of talked about I had done my chapel devotion for the grade schoolers on the Old Testament lesson. Well, let me, let me read it, and then, okay. we'll, and then we can talk about that. Is there anything else you want to bring up with the gospel lesson? No, because what I wanted to go to next kind of ties in more with the Old Testament lesson. Okay. Yeah, so the whole idea, though, of fairness, which I know you're going to talk about now with the Old Testament lesson, uh, that's in the gospel lesson, and even in the epistle lesson of the fairness of the two sons of Rebekah, of Jacob being the younger son— and Esau being the older of the twin boys, and yet God allows Jacob to receive the blessing instead of Esau. Uh, but that's a really hard text that neither you or I wanted to wanted to wrestle with in studying for the podcast. So we're going to go to the Old Testament lesson. But Paul deals with that fairness uh, as talking about predestination or election in the epistle lesson. Uh, so God bless your pastor if he's preaching on that this Sunday. Uh, Jonah chapters 3 and 4. So uh, setting up Jonah 3, God has told Jonah to go to Nineveh in the capital city of Assyria. And it's a huge city because it would take three days to walk through. And uh, Jonah knows how awful the people of Assyria are, especially to the Israelites. And other peoples, you know, they are a very violent people, and Nathan will talk about that too. They're a very violent people, and Jonah says, yes, Lord, I'll do that, and then goes the opposite direction, gets in a boat headed toward Tarshish, which is like present-day Spain, whereas Nineveh would be in Assyria, say like Iraq, Iran, so forth, right? Yeah. And then uh, God sends a storm. And the, the pagan sailors don't want to throw Jonah overboard, but he tells them to because he realizes this is his fault and God's getting his attention. They throw him overboard. Jonah chapter 2, he come, comes down to the depths of the sea, the seaweed around his head and so forth. And he prays a beautiful prayer of repentance. And then God sends the fish to swallow him whole. And then he's in the belly of the fish, really dead for three days before the the fish vomits him up on the shore. Then he has to walk all the way from the shore all the way to Assyria, which is a very long way. And then when he finally gets there, then he preaches, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And Repent or in 40 days God's going to destroy this city. And amazingly, they repent. And then that's where we pick it up. When God saw their actions, that they, meaning the Ninevites, had turned away from their evil, God relented from the disaster which he said he would bring on them, and he did not carry it out. But to Jonah, all this seemed very bad, and he became very angry. He prayed to the Lord, Lord, wasn't this exactly what I said when I was still in my own country? 
That's why I previously fled to Tarshish, because I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, and you relent from sending disaster. So now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city. I imagine him pouting as he's doing this and stomping off like a teenage, well, a teenage daughter, right? He made a shelter for himself there and sat in the shade under it, waiting to see what would happen in the city. Then the Lord God provided a plant and made it grow up over Jonah to provide shade over his head to relieve him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm and it attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. So he said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah said, I do have a right to be angry, angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. You did not work for it or make it grow. It grew up in one night and perished after one night. So should I not be concerned for Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left and also many animals? You pick it up, Nathan. So the entire book of Jonah is just a fascinating, fascinating read. Um, you have this prophet of God who is sent to go preach to a non-Israelite nation and not only just non-israelite one that would have been their enemy um and as michael alluded to the assyrians were not known for being the nicest people in the world they had a reputation uh for being absolutely brutal um and not only others would say that about them they too would say that about themselves i had written last uh, for class a bible study on jonah and i wish i would have grabbed a couple of my notes because i have a couple of the quotations from some of the uh, assyrian kings about what they say themselves that they will do to their enemies um and, and it's pretty graphic i mean that's what the assyrians wanted to be known for they wanted to be blood known to be bloodthirsty and that if you met with them they were going to wipe you out and so jonah's attitude is god why in the world would you want to save these people? Like, if anyone deserves to be destroyed by you, yeah, it, it's it's Assyria. Um, and so kind of going back in Jonah. Well, if I can interrupt yeah. you. Yeah, so what I've talked about it too is that Assyria is, is evil and wicked, and Jonah is concerned, I think, that Assyria is going to come and do that wickedness and evil on his people of the Israelites. And so, yeah, he wants them wiped out. I think that's part of it, too. What else is interesting is you have in Jonah, I think it's chapter, uh, yeah, in chapter, in chapter 1, when God gives him the call, Jonah doesn't say anything. <laughs> he just runs away there's no response to a call of god i mean it's it's mm. almost worse than saying god is this sure what you want me to do jonah just is like nope i'm i'm out yeah he doesn't say like eli uh like isaiah here am i send me send me but he, you're right i never picked up on that nor does he say 
hear my don't send me there. He just picks up and goes. And what else is interesting too is in some of the commentaries I was reading when I was when I was looking at this, there's a question as to, you know, some people have taken it when Jonah tells the sailors to throw him overboard as that's him being selfless and looking out to save the sailors. But there's other commentators where they're going, well, Jonah figures, you know, if I drown and die, <laughs> I do not have to go to Nineveh. There's no way uh-huh. that God can make me go if I'm dead. Well, well God, I never thought of it that way. He really doesn't want to go. Yeah. Then. Yep. Okay. He'd rather die than have to preach to, preach repentance to these wicked Ninevites. Yep. But then, you know, God sends the fish. Jonah repents. Jonah goes to Nineveh, preaches the message. And then when I read this, I'm like, can you imagine going to, you know, say, Tehran or Moscow and preaching a message of repentance and the entire city putting on sackcloth and ashes and repenting? I would be... I would be amazed and overjoyed that God had used me to to do that in such a way. And what is Jonah's response? God, this is what I said was going to happen because you're merciful. And I knew, I knew if I came and preached to these people, they were going to repent and you were going to have mercy. And it's amazing that Jonah is angry at God for being merciful and compassionate. Yeah, he's quoting uh, scripture here when he says... God, I knew that you're gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, and you relent from sending disaster. I knew this. And really what he's saying, he's throwing it back in God's face. Because it's it's good for us to quote Scripture back to God. Really think of our Lutheran worship. That's really what Lutheran worship is. It's just saying and singing God's praises back to him. Uh, when I, in my adult confirmation class that I've written on Lutheran worship, the, the homework is usually very simple. People, well, pa- Pastor, this is what I wrote down. It seems too simple. I said, yeah, it, I'm a simple guy. It's a simple answer. Like the Gloria, I just have them look up and say, all right, where do we get these, verse, get these phrases? Like, uh, glory to God in the highest. We see that's the message of the angels at, in the Bethlehem sky. Oh, Christ, Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. That's the message of John the Baptist uh, pointing to Jesus, that we are saying God's words back to him in praise. And I bring that up to say here, Jonah is saying God's words back to him, not in praise, but in disgust. God, you are merciful and slow to anger. You are compassionate, and I don't like that about you. You're really saying, I like it for me, uh, but not for them. Yeah, and I can't, I don't remember where it is off the top of my head. It's either in 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles. There is another instance. Now, we don't know for certain that it's the same Jonah, but it does seem to match up timeline-wise but that Jonah went and preached a message of repentance to the Israelites and didn't talk back to God at all there. So I think there's an implication here of, well, God, I want you to be merciful to my people, but I don't want you to be merciful to those really bad people over there, those people that are, in fact, the enemy of my people. I want you to be merciful to me, but not to them. One of the things that we did on Tuesday at the end of our catechism class, because 
it shocked me. We actually had a few extra minutes left over. And so we played a little game. And one of the games is uh, they had to guess uh, 10 things that were on the card. And it was 10 miracles in the Bible. Well, this is a miracle that could have been included. It wasn't. But the kids would never have gotten. I don't think any, any of us would have gotten. Uh, well, it's the miracle of the vine, but before that, it's the miracle. Oh, there's a lot of miracles in Jonah. There's the miracle of the storm, the miracle of the fish, of Jonah being alive in the fish for three days. The biggest miracle is that everyone repents uh, within a few days. But then, yeah, this miracle of this huge vine growing up in probably desert land very quickly and then giving him shade from a hot, humid day or maybe just even a hot, dry day, protecting protecting him from the heat of the sun, and then God sends a worm. And that worm chews it, it topples over, dies, and now he's, he's suffering from heat stroke, and now he's whining about it. And I think it's interesting, too. You see God's amazing patience towards Jonah in this account, too, where he comes to Jonah, who has said some terrible things to God, and yet God intervenes again and gives him another opportunity to repent by saying, okay, I made this vine grow up and die, and you're more upset about a vine than you are upset about all the people of Nineveh being destroyed and all of the animals, too. And in just an absolutely artful piece of rhetoric, that's where the story ends. And then it's kind of left up to the reader, how does Jonah answer God's question? Does Jonah repent? Does Jonah say, yeah, I see your point, God. I'm so upset about a vine, I should be more upset about these people that I wanted to be destroyed. Or does Jonah double down in unbelief and say, no, God, I, I still think you are wrong to show compassion. I just had this thought. So it's interesting, you know, I've been a Christian for my entire life since my baptism. been a pastor for a long time, 27 plus years, but it's amazing. God just throws things at you sometimes. Would you say, Nathan, that the vine is like a means of grace? The reason I think of that way is, and I could be wrong because I said it just came, came to me like 30 seconds ago, is that what's a means of grace? Baptism is a means of grace. It's the gospel attached to something physical, something we can feel, like water. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament. It is God's grace that is attached to something physical, bread and wine. Here, this is God's grace attached to something physical in this vine. In that, and I, just to have the opposite side of, we just talked about Jesus' story, because I think we learn a lot of times from stories. And Jesus tells us a story so that we, rather than just saying right out, hey, you, you should appreciate God's grace, because he could have done that. Appreciate God's grace, and it's wrong if you don't, and you uh, and it's it's wrong for you if you uh, don't cherish your grace or you uh, don't cherish the grace that I want to give to others. He could have said that. Instead, he teaches that same thing with a story. Here, God could have said that, but I don't know if Jonah would have gotten the hint by just God telling him because he's told him and he didn't get it. So here, just attaching that grace to something physical of a plant and then removing that grace. 
don't know. Am I way off? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't know if I'd call it a means of no. grace. I would say it's it's definitely a very powerful object lesson yeah. that God does. Well, and it's interesting, too, because God sees Jonah's discomfort and provides a purely phys- something to, to remove his purely physical discomfort, even <laughs> while he's in the process of telling God what an idiot he is for showing mercy on the Assyrians in Nineveh. And it's just such a, it's such a, it's so hard to identify with Jonah in this moment. And it is what I was talking about before. This is an example where we as Christians can say, well, at least I've never done what Jonah did. And yet you think about it, maybe not as blatantly as Jonah did, but we've all at times done the same things. You think about like one of those stories, like people throw kind of at Christians when they're mocking grace. Well, you're saying if that if Hitler believed in Jesus right before he died, he would go to heaven? Yes, that's that's what grace is. But from a human standpoint, we would say, well, that's not fair. He did so much evil. How could a good and just God forgive that? And then that goes back to, well, we're not judging what what we're not judging people against people. We're judging ourselves against the law. And it's that biblical principle, again, which doesn't seem fair, which God says if you break even the smallest of these commandments, it's the same as breaking the entire law. You think about, oh, I think someone someone told me this analogy with kind of breaking the law. You, It's very hard to break a window in a small way. If you mm. drop a window, you're shattering it. The entire window is ruined. There isn't, you know I mean, I'm, Obviously, there's a different. You could break a window in a small way, but the principle there is, if you break it, it's broken, and that's how it is with God's law. God doesn't, God doesn't make a differentiation between degrees of sinfulness. You either are a sinner, or you're not a sinner, and we're all sinners. It's only Christ who is not a sinner. So, breaking a window in a small way. You don't know this story. Uh, this is a long time ago. But someone threw a brick through one of our stained glass windows in the back of the church. But it didn't smash everything. It just went right through the window. Maybe it's because it's tempered glass or whatever, but it just created the hole. I kept the brick in the sacristy for a long time just as a reminder. And then we just kind of threw it away since I was the only one that knew the story. And thankfully, we had a retired pastor in the area that was able to fix it and match the the stained glass pretty well. Uh, but yeah, you can break a window in a small way, but usually you can't. And I, I like what you said, so I rescind my comment. Don't kick me out of the synod on uh, means of grace. I like the phrase object lesson better. Isn't that what we often do in our children's devotions? That we have a children's devotion and we use an object to teach something that's harder and more difficult to grasp and then simplify it down to children. And, you know, again, you're new to the children's devotions. I've been doing them for 27 years in the ministry. And I also know the way that I do children's devotions is I'm talking to the parents and the adults. I'm purposely talking to them, but through the kids. And they know that. And that's when I've had... More than one person over the years say to me, Pastor, I got more out of your children's devotion than your sermon. 
And I always say, thank you. I spent 15 minutes on the children's devotion and 15 hours on the sermon. But I appreciate that you got something out of, out of what was talked about today. Yeah, I, I've already ran into that. I think it was a couple Sundays ago when I got to church and went, I have to do a children's devotion this morning. <laughs> so, yeah, that one kind of slips my mind. But I, but I think it's true. We usually try to either do a simplified object lesson about what our sermon is or as, or one of the other one of the other one of the other readings for the Sunday just to illustrate kind of the main idea of the Sunday of what the scripture passages are trying what the readings are trying to get at. Yeah. And I think people adults even like that because we again we like stories. And sometimes at least I know the way I write and preach I want to sound smarter than I really am. And so I may use flowery language, lots of alliteration and things like that. But you don't do that with a children's devotion. It's very simple, and you're trying to speak down to a very simple level, and which is good. And people like that. They don't like, and they don't need flowery language. And that's the key here is Jesus simplifies grace and mercy into a simple story. And then God simplifies grace and mercy into a simple story, but it's an object lesson. Well, and I think Jesus really does a masterful job here with simplifying the point he's making because I know every time I've ever read this story, and I'm sure many people who have also read this parable, where do you inevitably find yourself, where does your sympathy go in this story? It's not with the landowner, you find yourself identifying with the workers who feel like they were cheated. And that was Jesus's point, is, yes, this is an attitude that all sinners struggle with, and it's an attitude we need to, we need to daily overcome. We need to take our focus off of other people and focus on Christ. And remember that if God is dealing with us fairly, we wouldn't be getting a denarius for our day's work. We would be getting hell but that God doesn't deal with any of us fairly. Instead of punishing us as our sins deserve, he punished Christ, who in the ultimate act of injustice, if you think about it, Christ who did nothing to deserve that punishment. One of the things that I try and do is explain the difference between grace and mercy. I think for much of my ministry, I just use those as synonyms, and they're not. They're closely related to each other, but they're different that mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Uh, So let me say that again. So mercy, not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So again, to put this in an object lesson or a story would be like if you are, uh, if you've gotten a huge ticket and maybe even jail time for the way you were driving your vehicle, and now the judge says, uh, I'm going to give you grace. You don't have to pay your ticket. You don't have to go to jail. That's grace. But then he also says, I, I'm not just letting you off free. I am going to make it so that uh, my son is going to pay your fine. My son is going to give you, is going to go and spend the time that you were supposed to be in jail. And... Uh, I'm going to not only let you go free, I'm going to let you stay in my house, my mansion for a while, and I'm going to let you eat my best foods. That's mercy. 
Okay, it's something that it's a ridiculous story, and yet it's a story that is exactly true when you make it that the judge is God the Father, the Son is the one who is Jesus Christ, and then the mercy and forgiveness is the the food that we eat now of the sacrament and God's word, and then also being in God's house and church, and then taking that to glory in heaven of sitting at God's banquet feast and being in his mansions of heaven. Maybe I misunderstood you, but I think you flipped that around. Whatever. Because <laughs> I think the mercy would be God not punishing us, not giving us the ticket. Okay. And the grace would be now... See, even even all these years yeah, in ministry. I know. And now... Now, not only are we not being punished, we're now being made a member of God's household. We're receiving that gift. See, that's what happens when you just come up with stuff on the fly, whereas I would have had it right if I would have written it all down and put it in a sermon format or a children's devotion. But thanks for calling me out on that. You're welcome. What's really fun is when you do that in your sermon and then you get sidetracked in your own head because you're like, wait, I just said that wrong. And then you lose what you're talking about. And then you're like, well, do I go back or do I just keep muddling through? Yeah, or yeah, to see a former seminary professor just shaking his head with his eyes <laughs> closed going, yeah, I've just messed that up, but I don't know what I said anymore, so we're just going to go on. I try not to look over at that part of the church. <laughs> uh, so just wrapping it up is what's interesting is when Jonah chapter 4 ends with this verse of God saying to Jonah, uh, you know, you've been concerned about this plant. You didn't make it grow, but you're not concerned about all these people. The end. Uh, and that's just an interesting way of ending this. And the sudden conclusion, it leaves us in suspense and then wondering, well, what happened to Jonah? Did he change his attitude? Did he just stay there? Or what happened to him? Personally, I think that if if Jonah is the author of this book, which he is, and then he's the one who's writing this, it's he's writing it because he is repentant. He said, yeah, God, I messed up. It's kind of like uh, Peter telling Mark and so forth, so that Mark is writing his gospel about the way that Peter denied Jesus and, and was not faithful. He's admitting, yeah, I messed up. And I think that's what Jonah is doing here. The other thing that's interesting with the way that the minor prophets are structured um, and the way they they fit together chronologically is if you want to find out. So in this story, or in Jonah, Nineveh repents, but they fall back into their wicked ways. And if you go then to the book of Nahum, you hear how God then does bring his judgment against Assyria Mm -hmm. and pronounces his curses against them because they don't stay in this state of repentance. They go back to their evil ways. They go back to their false gods. They turn away from the Lord. And that is one of those things that, you know, we talk about how there is a time, you know, there's a time of grace and that at at some point, the time of grace runs out and God's judgment does come into effect. Um, And what we want to do is we want to take as many opportunities as possible to share the gospel with people while they're still in that time of grace. Yeah, and then you can tie that in with the gospel lesson where Jesus says, well, I'm sorry, the vineyard owner says to the first workers, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Friend, uh, in the Greek, it's like buddy, pal, you know, being nice. Uh, You know, that God would be saying this to the Ninevites. 
friend, buddy, pal, I gave you grace. I gave you your denarius by sending my prophet Jonah. And after all the hassle I had with that guy, I sent him to you and I gave you grace. But you have rejected my grace. Now, uh, I gave you what you asked for. Uh, Take it. It's yours and go. You didn't want my grace. You wanted justice. Now, like you said, Nathan, here comes the justice. Here come, to reference a movie, here comes the boom. I don't know if you've seen that. You're a wrestler. You should know that movie. Yeah, I've heard the expression. I don't remember what movie oh, that's from. Oh, all right. All right. Well, we, you have to have some kind of gospel ending because otherwise you don't want to just end with the boom with the justice. <laughs> well, I think I think the gospel the gospel ending here is that while in sinfulness, we can identify with the workers that are not happy with their wages. I think the gospel message here is that we realize that you know, really, we're, we all fall into the, when we compare ourselves to God's law, we realize that we all fall into those, you know, later workers, that none of us have lived or worked such a hard life that we, that we actually earn that denarius, that it's, it's a gift. It's a gift that God gives to us all, and that we just live our lives in this constant state of gratitude going, I don't deserve this. I can't do anything to deserve this. This is entirely God's gift to me. And then to wrap it all up, because I know you're going to be talking about this in your sermon, of that's not fair. And for us, uh, let's not allow that thinking into our hearts and out of our mouths. We learned that lesson from Jonah. That's not fair with the Ninevites uh, to look at the epistle lesson where Paul is writing to the Jews and Gentiles, but it would be the Jews that are saying to the about the Gentiles, that's not fair that they're getting included into the kingdom without having to follow all of the Old Testament regulations that Jews had followed. And then the first workers saying they got a denarius and then saying that's not fair to the vineyard owner that the other Workers who had only worked one hour got that same day's wage. That's not fair. And for us, we dare never say that's not fair to God because instead we should be saying, thank you, God, for not being fair because fair would mean apart from me, you evildoers. But since God is not fair, now we get the reward of grace. So this just reminded me. I was wrapping it up so nicely there. But this just reminded me of a scene from one of my all-time favorite movies which is the ten commandments and where you have Ewell Brenner sitting there accusing um, Charlton Heston who's Moses of all these things he's done wrong against the Pharaoh and he's adding them up on the scale to show see you've done wrong and Moses picks up a brick and walks over and drops the brick on the scale and it sends everything flying and he's saying look at the look at the results and I you, you, you could turn that analogy either way you could say you know, if we wanted the the scales to be to be fair, we could go and add up all our works, and it wouldn't balance. But then Christ comes and drops the weight of His perfection, and that just tips the scales entirely into grace. Yep. So we'll wrap it up there. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. You are thirsty, my friends. Quench that thirst in the water of life.